This is the Hidden Wire podcast episode 582. This is my interview with Raj Ragunathan. Enjoy. G'day ladies and gentlemen and welcome to this week's episode on the Hidden Wire podcast. I hope you are well. Great to have you here with me today. Guys, today I'm bringing you an interview I did with Raj Ragunathan. He is the author of If You're So Smart, Why Aren't You Happy? It was an interview I did probably a couple of years ago now, so it's been a while. I've actually tried to get him back on the show, but he's a hard man to lock into any schedule. It's quite busy. But look, guys, this is a fantastic interview. Um, We really explore the keys to happiness. Um, And what's interesting is that he's got many interesting findings and insights that you probably wouldn't expect. He's actually written a book about it, If You're So Smart, Why Aren't You Happy? Of course, where he mentions a lot of these things. Uh, For example, you know, wealth and the correlation to happiness is not as strong as you think. Uh, Generosity is certainly a key element to happiness. uh, And there are many other elements too that he shares in the book and in this interview as well. So I hope you enjoy it, guys. Um, I've been quite busy myself, so this is the reason for this replay episode, trying to catch up on the various activities, including the launch of my new book, The Ultimate Life Map. Check it out, theultimatelifemap.com. Support the show by jumping on to thehiddenwire.com, guys, and enjoy this episode. We'll talk very, very soon. Have a good day. G'day, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to another episode of The Hidden White Podcast. My name is Lee Martinuzzi, and I'm pumped and excited Today, I am joined by Raj Ragunathan, who is the author of a book just recently published called If You're So Smart, Why Aren't You Happy? He's also a professor of marketing in Texas, and he's joining me today to discuss happiness and all that it entails. How are you, Raj? Doing very well, Lee. Thank you very much. I uh, love the story, and I love the idea of this book, and that's why I think we've made that connection to get you on the show. And Talk to you about mm-hmm. happiness, and you've you've done some extensive research with this book. But first of all, it was released in April, so congratulations on the launch. Thank you very much. How's it all going? Uh, it's going pretty well. Um, it was released in the United States on the twenty sixth of uh, April, and in the UK a couple of days later, and then in um, India a couple of weeks later, and it's coming out in ten other languages. So you know, I really can't. Um, hope for uh, much more. I'm really pleased with how it's all turned out. Yeah, awesome work, awesome work. It's great to um, have your work then sort of, you know, shared, I guess, and, and translated mm-hmm. into another 10 languages. That shows it's, um, it must be pretty well taken around there. Do you, can I ask you, did the, um, the name remain the same for the different countries? Uh, the title, yeah. uh, If You're So Smart, Why Aren't You Happy? Uh, I imagine so. Um, I guess it depends on how well it translates into the other languages. Uh, in English, obviously, it uh, has a certain provocative appeal to it. And yeah. I uh, imagine it will be the same in the other languages. Actually, good question. I don't know. I didn't check. I just, yeah, sometimes they seem to change. So I was just curious if that, that would change at all. But um, never mind, not important. So let's talk about happiness, Raj. And first of all, perhaps just to get a perspective or some context as to your background. What You're a, you're a professor of marketing at Macomb School. Um, mm-hmm. So that's your, your background. This is what you've, you've been doing. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm in the business school. I teach um, in the marketing department and I used to teach very standard marketing courses like consumer behavior and customer insights, and those kinds of courses. Uh, and so now that I teach this course on happiness in the business school, people do a bit of a double take, you know, say, what, really? A, a, a business school professor teaching happiness? Uh, do happiness and business go together? is uh, their kind of implicit uh, question, um, and that's why they do the double take. Yeah, That's so an it interesting, interesting question, point. isn't it? Do happiness and business go together? Because my thoughts are that happiness goes with everything that you do in life, or it should do anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's the, I guess, um, the, the, that's how you would want it to be, and that's how it turns out to be, uh, in a sense that happier people are more successful even in business, or maybe particularly in business. Uh, but nevertheless, I think uh, many people have this instinctive uh, belief that you know, business is all about making money, and that might involve trading on people's toes and sacrificing your own personal happiness in order to succeed. Um, and uh, that often comes in the way of happiness. But but uh, a lot of the research actually points out that if you're happier, you're more likely to be productive. And part of the productivity comes from being more creative, more able to think of new novel ideas. But a big part of it also comes from just being a better team player when you're happier. You know, you're, you collaborate better with other people. You're more optimistic and um, you are more, you know, positive about, um, about achieving your goals, which rubs off onto your teammates. Another very important reason why happiness goes well with business and it increases productivity has to do with health. Uh, happy people have better immune systems mm. um, and, and they live longer. So they take less sick leave and so on. Okay. So tell us, what, what led you to to this research and actually I've got two questions. So first is, do you teach this course then at the business university where you teach the marketing or is it some course that you teach elsewhere? No, no, no. I, I teach uh, the happiness course both at Macomb School of Business and yeah. at uh, the Indian School of Business. Indian School of Business uh, is in India and I visit it uh, every year um, sometime around November. And this year too, in 2016, I'm going to do that. So I teach it at both places. And of course, you might be aware that I have uh, a, a what's called a MOOC, a Massive Open Online Course, um, M-O-O-C, um, MOOC. Uh, uh, the course is available for anybody who wants to take it online for free on Coursera.org, which is uh, the biggest MOOC platform out there. So it's available across a variety of different forums. Okay, I'll put that in the show notes. Um, so Coursera.com, you can find that course. Yeah, Coursera.org actually. .org, okay. And is that called if you're so smart? Why aren't you happy or what's the course name? No, 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 no. It's called A Life of Happiness and Fulfillment. A Life of Happiness and Fulfillment. A Life of Happiness and Fulfillment. Cool. So I'll stick that in the show notes, guys, if you're listening out there and interested in having a look at it. Um, Definitely a worthwhile course, I'm sure. So what led you to this research? Did you – I sort of read there somewhere that you were hanging out with some friends and you sort of had this realization that – Perhaps they, were, they seemed to be all smart and successful in their career but weren't typically happy. Is that the, mm-hmm. the truth that led you there? Yeah. So, you know, uh, it's sometimes difficult to kind of trace that one event that um, triggered 
um, a big kind of life decision, uh, yeah. you know, etc. But in my case, uh, when people ask me, you know, how come you're teaching a course on happiness being in the business school, I typically that's the answer that I give. Actually, the real answer is it goes a little bit deeper than that. I've always been very interested in the topic of happiness. I've always been reading up about it in my own way. And I ended up doing a lot of research about it in my dissertation as well um, mm. on the relationship between consumption and uh, emotions. Okay. And uh, but but the kind of uh, milestone, if you will, uh, the fork in the road uh, that that made me kind of take this path of teaching this class on happiness actually happened around 2006, 2007, about 10 years back in India, when I took a bunch of Macomb students, um, MBA students from Macomb's to India on one of these kind of global trips where the objective was to learn about a totally different country and culture. And being from India, I felt comfortable taking them to uh, my home country. And it had been about 15 years since I had graduated from my own MBA school back in India, yeah. and about 20 years since I had graduated from my undergraduate uh, engineering school. And so I ended up um, meeting a lot of my batchmates from both my MBA and my um, engineering days. Okay, and cool. I, I noticed this... Um, kind of interesting phenomenon where there was very little correlation between career success, how much money you earned, how high up you were in your organization, how much power you had and so on, and how happy and meaningful and fulfilling your life seemed to be, right? Mm. And um, to be totally honest, I mean, I, I kind of felt that even within myself, you know, even though on paper, I was a PhD, which is a big deal, of course, right? And a, a, a professor at a very, you know, pretty solid university, University of Austin. Um, and yet, uh, deep down, I had to acknowledge that I probably wasn't any happier than I had been as an undergraduate student, for example, or as a kid. In fact, if anything, it seemed like my life was a little less meaningful, a little more empty than it had seemed at that point. Um, and so, you know, seeing this in my colleagues and uh, friends and batchmates from all those years back really kind of, um, uh, made it even more, that much more salient to me that I needed to do something about it because I felt that ultimately as educators, our obligation and responsibility is to give our students these skills and tool sets required to lead a fulfilling, happy life. If we don't deliver that as an educational institution, I feel, I felt personally that, uh, we weren't. Um, living up to what we were, uh, what we were obliged to deliver, and so I took it upon myself to do something about it and put this course together. Wow! So you've been teaching this course since two thousand and six, then was it? No, uh, that's when I that's had when the you, idea. That's when you had the idea. Okay, yep. Mm -hmm. And I started in two thousand nine. Two thousand nine to do the course, and then that's involved into the book as well. Yes, that's evolved into the book. Great. I um yeah, I love the story and and certainly the way you resonated with it as well. So did you find yourself typically unhappy or you just felt there was a feeling that perhaps you weren't as happy or you didn't lead a as meaningful life as you thought perhaps you should be? Yeah, I think often I felt that way that uh, this wasn't as fulfilling. You know, when you're an, when you're an undergraduate student, for example, if at that point when I was like twenty twenty one years old, if somebody had told me, you know, one day you're going to be a professor at University of Texas at Austin and you're going to earn you know enough and more uh, for you to not just fulfill your basic necessities, but even to lead a pretty luxurious life. Mm. And you're going to marry to this wonderful person. You're going to have a couple of kids who are going to be healthy and happy and you're going to live in this kind of a house and so on. And it asked me at that point, you know, how happy would you be uh, if all this happened? I would have probably said 11 out of 10, you know? Yeah, um, yeah most people would. And you'd say that's the, that's the dream. That's what we need to do. Yeah. 
Exactly. But here I was, all those were true. And yet, you know, if I were to be honest with myself, I would probably have rated myself, let's say, six and a half, maybe a seven. But the interesting thing too, Lee, was that it wasn't just that on average, I felt that life hadn't turned out to be, I didn't feel as, you know, my life was as meaningful and fulfilling as I thought it ought to be given everything I had. I also had this kind of a roller coaster thing happening, you know, where Sometimes I'd hit a peak and I'd feel really great. And then other times I'd feel like really miserable, mm. um, even depressed, you know, yeah. not clinically depressed, of course, but, you know, just this sense of um, uh, like existential angst almost, uh, you know, that I, I I felt that this was kind of not just unhappy, but uh, kind of even miserable a little bit. And um, so I, I just felt that, wow, you know, despite all this, if I, with all this, feel this way, then... You know, it really, what might other people uh, be feeling, right? Who had even less, uh, mm. who hadn't achieved much or didn't, just didn't have luck go their way. Uh, so I felt that uh, in some sense, I it was a huge wake-up call for me and, and an insight was that, look, at the end of the day, perhaps the most um, debilitating disease there is, is, is depression, you know, is a sense of mental unwellness, so to speak. Mm. Because, I mean, you could actually be, paraplegic or you know have a weak heart or blood pressure or whatever but if you're feeling good about life and if you're feeling optimistic and hopeful and you felt that you had support and all that then in the end in your head life isn't so bad you know so in the ultimate analysis I felt that you know not feeling good from the inside out is perhaps the worst thing that could happen to you and uh, it became a new to me at that point that I'd rather be a beggar on the street feeling really happy with myself than be somebody like Michael Jackson who had to take anesthetics. You know, anesthetic. This is the stuff that doctors give you to knock you out. He had to take that to go to sleep. Merely yeah. to go to sleep, he had to take that. So I, it, it occurred uh, as kind of a blinding insight to me that I'd rather be a happy beggar than a, than a miserable, rich, famous person. And, and that was the turning point for me to put the course together. Well, I like that too. It's a, it's a pretty powerful message. I, I suppose for people listening out there, um, they can certainly probably relate, whether that's them now or was them at some time. I can certainly relate. And I interview a lot of people that have been through, um, you know, tremendous success and, and earned millions and had this, you know, had it all pretty much um, and then had that realisation, she's what it's all about and where's where's the meaning in life and why am I not happy? Why don't, and, you know, as you said, that roller coaster is pretty true too. You get to that point where you sort of, have your good days and then your bad days. And whilst it's not clinically depressed, um, you still do feel down, miserable, grumpy, you know, it affects your mm-hmm. attitudes towards life and others around you. And I think that's um, pretty damaging for, as you alluded to earlier on, you know, your health and mm-hmm. and your ability to be more creative and productive and positive. Mm-hmm. Um, so obviously your research is, is quite extensive. How did you go about your research, first of all? Yeah, that's a great question too. Uh, so when I started uh, thinking about teaching this topic, uh, I was of, of course approaching it um, from the point of view of um, being appealing to and targeting MBA students. Uh, the, the, these were the uh, students I was teaching uh, who have a certain set of properties, right? I mean, they're not like students from the liberal arts school or most other uh, kinds of departments. They're much more achievement-oriented, uh, much more in a sense, self-centered. That's the kind of negative angle to this, but the positive angle is much more autonomous, independent, um, self-driven, if you will, Mm. uh, and all that. And so they had a set of characteristics and they're very much focused on, okay, key takeaways at the end of every class. 
and uh, for you to be ultra rational in everything you say, not venture into topics that might be considered woo-woo and uh, spiritual and stuff like that. So um, I took all that into account in putting the course together. And I just thought to myself, okay, uh, here's the basic objective I'm going to try and fulfill here. I'm just going to, my objective is going to be to give students an opportunity to talk about one of life's big questions, which is what are the determinants of a happy and fulfilling life? Mm. Okay, so that's all it's going to be. It's not going to be that I'm going to try and transform them in any way or, you know, achieve uh, like great levels of happiness in them or anything like that. It was very, very low-hanging fruit. I'm just going to give them an opportunity to talk about this important question. Um, That's all I'm going to promise, you know. It's often where healing stems from anyway in in whatever aspect of life. uh Uh-huh, right, indeed. And if in the end, in in achieving that objective of uh, uh, letting them talk about this and and discuss it uh, among their peers, uh, if uh, I end up achieving some kind of a transformation where they view life differently in a more positive way and in fact feel happier, then all the better. That would be icing on the cake. So that's how I ended up approaching it. And so I read up uh, a lot of the books on the topic in positive psychology, a lot of the research. I was, of course, familiar with much of it. Um, And I wanted to kind of make it as real-world relevant, personally relatable as possible. And so I I thought the best approach um, would be to take the approach of, okay, what is it that we believe is going to make us happier? And does it in fact turn out to be true that achieving these things um, does make us happier or not? And then in the cases where it doesn't make us happier, then obviously we're being misled, we're biased. We believe that this uh, thing is going to make us happy when in fact it doesn't. Uh, Maybe even goes to the extent of actually making us unhappy, even though we think it's going to make us happy. And so that was my focus in identifying these gaps in knowledge, so to speak, between what we believe to be true and what is actually true and, and really kind of highlighting those aspects. So that's uh, that's the approach that I took. Oh, excellent! I love it, and s- certainly, um, yeah, sounds like some some interesting feedback would have been gathered from them. What did you find as far as what what the truth around happiness is, or what we believe? And um, mm-hmm. sorry, to, yeah, so I'm going in reverse there. But what is the what what is the reality of happiness, and mm-hmm. and what is actually beneficial? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, if I were to give you a synopsis of this, I would say that. Uh, five things emerge as being very, very important uh, for leading a happy and fulfilling life. And okay. uh, for the most part, uh, for the most part, we seem to be aware that these things actually do uh, lead to happiness. Um, but I think the approach that we take in trying to fulfill these needs uh, is where our, our bias or mistake comes in. So okay. basically, first of all, uh, in these five things, the first thing that's very important is that your basic necessities are met. Right? You can't be happy. Forget about being happy, actually. You can't be not unhappy uh, if you're struggling for the next meal or if you're going through lots of pain and so on and so forth. You know, So basic necessities have to be met, which is a no-brainer. Everybody knows that and everybody's correct about it. Um, then come three things, and often we don't know or we're not aware that these three things are very important to us. The first of these three things is a sense of mastery, that we feel that we are progressing towards becoming really, really good at doing this one thing, you know. And that thing that you choose for yourself to be a master of uh, will obviously vary among people, and that's good. So the more it is aligned with who you are, what your talents are, what your passion is, what your interests are, the yep. better. So. You could be a really good gardener, you could be a really good tourist guide, you could be a really great marine engineer, it doesn't really matter, you know. Mm-hmm. But you need to feel that I'm really good at this one thing. So let's call that mastery. Okay. 
The second thing that we need is a sense of belonging. Um, we need to feel that we have at least one really intimate um, relationship where you can call this person in, in, in the middle of the night and um, they'll be there for you. And if you have an emergency, they wouldn't have any hesitation and in jumping into a car and driving to your rescue. Okay, so let's call that belonging um, or B, right? So M for mastery, B for belonging. And the third thing, obviously, is an A, right? I'm in an MBA school, after all. So, uh, <laughs> That's right. Then the third thing, third thing we need, the A is autonomy. We need to feel that we are in control of our lives. We um, are the authors of our big decisions and that we are not somebody else's puppet. Um, and we are not under the, under the control of our spouse or boss or colleague or, you know, dictator or whatever. So, again, lots of evidence showing that all, all three things are very important. And uh, I don't know... Um, if most people are aware, uh, and uh, you know, once it's articulated to people that these three things are important, most people nod their heads and say, "Yeah, I can see how these are important." Mm, right? But that's what the research. That's that's very important. Now, where the mistake comes in um, is that people believe that the best way then to be happy is to directly go after mastery, right, uh, and pursue mastery directly. And the most direct approach to mastery is by comparing yourself to other people and asking yourself, am I better than that person, right? Am I the richest person in town? Am I, am I the most famous person in town? Am I the strongest person in town? And so on and so forth. Then once you are, then um, then try and become the uh, richest, strongest, biggest person in the, in, the, um, in the state and then in the country and then in the world and then try to sustain it forever and ever and, you know, make so much money that even your son is the richest or the daughter is the richest and so on. So that's the approach that most of us take or many of us take towards mastery. And that's where we make a mistake. Um, and in belonging, uh, seeking belonging, we make the mistake of wanting attention and adulation and love and caring and nurturance from other people. So it's almost as if we look at ourselves as if we were a cup that is empty and that needs to be filled in by other people. Right. So and we have to me, rely on others hmm? to, to bring us that happiness. Right. That's the direct approach that we take. And and with autonomy, we feel that we are in control of our lives when everything else is going exactly like how we want it to, when other people obey us, when we get all the uh, goals that we set for ourselves, we achieve them, we want to live in the city, earn this much money and uh, work this kind of a job. That's when um, uh, we know that we are autonomous and when we can be happy. And what the research shows, though, is that... Um, the best approach uh, to achieving the mastery, belonging, and autonomy, and to be happy at the same time, is actually to take a somewhat indirect approach, if you will. So the way to mastery is to forget about how well you're doing the task. Um, certainly not compare yourself to other people, but just do it because you love it, because mm. you, have, you have a talent in it, uh, because you get into these so-called flow states. Uh, when you engage with that activity. The best way to belonging is not to seek love and adulation, but to love and to care and to nurture other people. And then automatically, your desire for love and belonging will get satisfied. And the way to autonomy is not by controlling other people, but by controlling your own mind uh, to take what I call internal control first. Um, and that's where the mistake uh, or the discrepancy between what people believe is the way to happiness and what actually turns out to be a much more valid path to reliable path to happiness lies. Uh, it's not in the uh, goals that we know are important, basic necessities in the MBA, but in the approach that we take 
towards these goals. Um, so rather than taking a more, um, you know, what I call a scarcity-minded approach uh, through comparisons with other people, through feeling scarce in terms of love, through uh, wanting control over other people, take an abundance-minded approach where you're the object, you're the provider of love and service, where you are big enough to not compare yourself to other people, but just indulge in an activity for the love for it um, mm. and uh, take take internal control. So. Anyway, I've covered a lot of territory here, but I hopefully uh, it was somewhat cogent um, and understandable. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you, uh, were there five things for happiness? I thought I just got four there. Yeah. So, so yeah. So the basic necessities and the MBA, right? Yeah. Um, so the M and the B and the A are each one. Um, so that's four. And then the fifth thing is um, the mindset, uh, which is what I talked about in the end, which is a scarcity mindset versus an abundance mindset. And the scarcity mindset is. Uh, not good for happiness. The abundance mindset is much better. better. Okay, cool. So just just touch on these things. So the master, you know, the mastery approach to life, and that's I suppose you know the need to have continual growth, etc. As well, um, you say that you know a good way to to follow that path rather than compare in comparison, but rather than passion and enjoyment for what you do is, mm-hmm. is the key to the happiness there. Mm-hmm. So I've got that. Just going back to belonging. What's the mm-hmm. uh, what's the sort of secret? there to to belong yeah this is the um, better way to uh, be happy uh, and fulfill uh, the need for belonging is to actually be the provider of love and caring and nurturance so imagine this this cup analogy where you know uh, many of us make the mistake of uh, thinking that our cup of love is empty and we need other people to fill it up um, the the right approach if you want to be happy is to feel that your cup is overflowing with love you're already fully taken care of. And how can I serve you? How can I be uh, an agent of love for you? How can I care for you? How can I be of service to you? You know, So just turning it outward and looking for opportunities to be of service to other people um, actually is a much stronger determinant of your happiness. And not just your happiness, but also for your belonging. So imagine that um, uh, you you find this one this person who's really loving and caring towards you, uh, your natural response to that person would be to reciprocate that loving and caring. And Mm. so when you are the agent of love and caring, you naturally get other people to reciprocate it. Uh, And through that reciprocity, you set up really intimate, strong bonds with them. And so it ends up actually fulfilling the desire for belonging uh, much more quickly and much more reliably than if you were to seek this love and adulation from other people. Yeah, absolutely, and we we find that, and I've I've interviewed a few people that um, talk about that as far as you know depression or when you're unhappy or mm-hmm. um, you know just offering value back um, yeah. first before anything else, and if you mm-hmm. if you can do that, then you often become happier just in that process. So yeah, um, yeah, certainly can relate to that, and I'm sure the audience can too. Um, the autonomy piece, so um, you know being being independent and having control over your own life. Um, what, what's the what's the sort of remedy there? Yeah, so the uh, the the um, approach that a lot of people take, and that's a mistaken approach, is to try and control other people, to try and um, control the outcomes that you have in life in a kind of obsessive way. You know that I'll be happy when I own this car, uh, okay. I'll be happy when I live in this kind of a house. Um, so but much very more externally, I guess, as well. Yes, exactly. Taking external control. Uh, a much more reliable way is to take internal control, which is basically. Um, you know, one way in which to put it is to take personal responsibility for your happiness, which boils down to this idea that regardless of um, uh, whether other people behave like I want them to, regardless of what outcomes I am handed in life, 
I'm not going to let those things disturb my sense of internal equanimity. And I'm going to be happy in the way that I define it. I'm going to feel peaceful. I'm going to be uh, feeling a sense of internal harmony regardless of what happens outside of me. And just to take that personal responsibility. Uh, the beautiful thing about being a human being is that we have control over our imaginations and our thoughts. Mm. And uh, it turns out that, um, as you, as you, I'm sure know, Lee, uh, it turns out that our thoughts and imaginations wield a powerful influence over our feelings. And so if you can control your thoughts and imaginations and direct your attention to a certain set of thoughts which are more productive, which are more positive, which are more um, expansive and abundance-oriented, uh, and away from um, other thoughts that are more negative and pull you down, then you're naturally going to feel much happier. And we have lots and lots of examples of people like that, from Nelson Mandela and Mahatma Gandhi uh, to, to even you know lots of everyday people who've just chosen to... Um, take on this task of what you might call personal mastery, mastery of one's own mind and one's own feelings. And we have this tremendous ability and therefore uh, you can take this internal control. Uh, and once you do that, once you become autonomous in your mind, when you've freed your mind from the, um, you know, the, the clutches of desire, so to speak, and the clutches of external conditioning, uh, then you suddenly realize that you don't need the external world to cooperate with you for you to feel as happy. You know, yeah. uh, you have that control inside your own in your in your own head. And so you become much less obsessive about things turning out exactly like you want them to. You become much less judgmental of other people. You become uh, your happiness uh, is much less dependent on the cooperation of the uh, external, uh, the external world. And you become, in a sense, autonomous uh, and free of the external world. And that's what you were after anyway to begin with. And so, so it's really bringing so, that autonomy back in a, in a different direction. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. I love it. I love those three. Um, MBA, I like how you've linked it there too. Mm -hmm. um, certainly, I feel like um, one flows to the next. So, I mean, the, you know, mastering and, and belonging certainly can help with your responsibility or autonomy, um, your autonomy in life as well. Mm -hmm. I sort of all feel too, just as you discussed, that each of those things, if you're living in the direction that you suggest – that you sort of become more, sort of more present in the in the moment rather than mm. sort of living in the future, I guess, which is often where some of that anxiety and depression can come from. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, certainly when you follow your passion, when you do something that um, you're uh, gifted in, you have inherent uh, aptitude or talent in, you're more likely to be in the present uh, as opposed to when you're comparing yourself to other people when you mm. want to be the richest or strongest, etc. And... Um, uh, the uh, belonging part of it where you're being of service to other people uh, that too has this element of uh, being in the present moment um, yeah. in the sense that um, you discover that uh, when you are trying to be of service to another person that uh, you actually have uh, this inherent desire or you're hardwired uh, as a human being to be of service to other people to actually enjoy the process of um, being kind and caring to other people. Uh, there's been lots of studies that have been done, particularly in the last about five or six years. Uh, these, this is recent work that has shown that we seem to have a very strong altruistic gene in us or, or propensity in us. Even toddlers as young as two years old show this. You know, in one yeah. study, they looked at uh, these toddlers, they gave them some goldfish crackers um, that they could keep and consume by themselves or they could feed it to this monkey puppet. 
and uh, external observers looked at how happy these kids looked when they were eating it themselves versus feeding it to this puppy uh, sorry to, to this uh, puppet uh, and uh, what the what the finding revealed is that even these two year old toddlers you know we normally think of a toddlers as being very selfish and so on and often they can be but what we don't realize is that they also have this huge desire to be uh, nurturing and caring and everything and you can see it in their play too you know often uh, uh, if you have kids you know this that they'll they'll derive a lot of enjoyment from cuddling up with a little dog or a puppy or you know feeding you nice to you if you pretend like you get hurt you know taking care of you being the doctor and so on and so forth um so we seem to have a very strong desire to be nurturing as well and so when you when you fulfill that desire you end up kind of feeling very present because mm-hmm. that's part of part of your nature to be that way and and the internal control part of it is all about in a sense um being mindful being present um uh, because uh the there are two broad approaches to taking internal control um the first approach is uh, what's called emotion regulation where you're trying to kind of divert your attention away from things that are negative and pull you down towards things that are positive and that involves kind of you know uh, becoming conscious of where your mind tends to go and pulling it away from the you know uh, negative tendencies and so on that requires um some kind of mindfulness you know being present yeah. uh, but the other approach is actually to embrace that negativity you know not try to run away from it and change it and all that but just walk into it you know uh, and what the research shows is that when you when you use that approach of not being afraid of the negativity and uh, you're going to embrace it in all its glory and not be judgmental about it and not um try to push it away it's then that negativity somehow seems much less threatening and much less uh, solid um uh, and real than uh, it seemed to be in your imagination you know so yeah. in the end you can end up concluding that uh you know i have nothing to fear but fear itself in a sense you know um so uh, that's the beauty of it and that process of embracing uh, whatever is going on even the negative emotions is of course being totally present so yeah you're right that all of these uh you know positive approaches towards the mba share this flavor of uh, presence or being very much in the moment mm which is certainly it's it's hard to master that and certainly i'm i'm trying to master it and realizing <laughs> the more i can do of that the the better i feel in life mm-hmm. in general so it's it's fantastic stuff i want to talk about the mindset scarcity and abundance but i just want to go back quickly first of all to following your passion enjoying what you do i mean that's uh, the heart of this show is really doing that and um uh, putting more passion mm-hmm. into everything you do even if those things that you don't enjoy um you know you have to do just putting more passion into those things as well mm-hmm. but what's your experience feedback and observations on you know following your passion and is it is it true like is it possible that we can all you know follow more passion in certain inject more passion into our lives to to give us this high sense of meaning and happiness Mhm. Yeah, so this is a very interesting topic and uh uh obviously uh, being passionate about what you do is is very very important for happiness. You know, it's almost like uh the definition of uh happiness is to feel really engaged and passionate in whatever it is that you're doing, right? Um and oftentimes um what happens is that uh, we are not um passionate about what we are doing right now. and uh therefore we end up not feeling so happy and i think a big reason for why that happens to uh, in a vast majority of the cases is that people are actually not where they ought to be right i mean i might be somebody who's really i mean cut out to be a people person uh, and derive a lot of enjoyment from interacting with people and i might be sitting behind a computer 
um, being an accountant, right? Yeah. Uh, so that's not going to make me happy. So uh, the lack of passion um, can be uh, a signal that uh, something big, uh, you made a big mistake. You know, you're not where you ought to ought to be. You don't belong there. Um, but that said, even if you find something that you're truly, totally passionate about, you know, you're like big into, I don't know, sea, marine biology and life and um, swimming and physical activity and you're a scuba diver, you know, that's where you need to be. But uh, not all about scuba diving and being an instructor in scuba diving or owning a dive shop uh, might be pleasant to you. It may not involve, not all of it will involve marine life and, you know, physical activity. Some of it might involve, you know, just chores, so like filling up tanks and you know, keeping accounts and so on and so forth. The stuff that we right. don't like, so, the boring mundane work that comes, yeah. comes with everything yeah. we do generally. Exactly. And, you know, you can't really expect more than, say, uh, 70 80 percent of your life even the most interesting uh, you know you're doing exactly what you want to do that kind of life you know you can't expect even like some somewhere around 70 80 percent more than that uh to to be entirely to your liking so there will be some 10 15 20 percent that you actually don't like uh, yes. and you need to approach those things too with passion you know and if you do then you're going to be happier. You know, A, you can't avoid it because that's part of the job. And B, um, if you can't avoid it, you might as well start finding a way to like it, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, because that's going to make it more pleasant and so on. And there are a couple of strategies here. W one strategy is uh, even though you don't like it, just to start it, you know, just do it uh, kind of an attitude. Uh, and what the research shows is that once you start doing it, um, I call it the jumpstart hypothesis, but once you jumpstart it, uh, somehow take that first breath, right. Or first deep dive, uh, then you suddenly find it, uh, that it has its own momentum to it. You know, yeah. you get carried the momentum and you end up the, the first step. In other words, is the most difficult. So that's one strategy just to take the first step. Take that action, yeah. The second thing, the second strategy is to kind of look at that thing uh, that you find aversive and ask yourself, okay, uh, you know, in what way is this going to enable me doing this is going to enable me to meet my larger goal? In other words, um, you know, I have like this meaningful thing that I uh, I'm, I'm living up to. Uh, you know, I, I want to, as a scuba diver, a dive shop owner, I'm trying to kind of give these great experiences for people. But part of that, you know, I can't do that unless I keep like really great accounts or I fill up all these tanks and so on and so forth. And so just telling yourself that all of this is an aid of meeting this larger, bigger goal uh, and reminding yourself of that will infuse that passion into you, uh, which will make you feel that, yeah, you know, what I'm doing is really meaningful stuff. Yeah. Um, there are all these stories of janitors and, you know, hospitals that don't look at their task as, you know, cleaning up bathrooms and floors. They look at it as serving their role in enhancing the well-being of the patients, yeah. you know. Yeah. And once they cast it in that light, all of a sudden they get this huge burst of energy um, uh, and they start singing and smiling at these patients because they know that that's also part of uh, what will get them to feel better. And so you look at it from that perspective that can um, inject some passion into even these mundane activities. Yeah, that's beautiful. And that, I really I talk about, you know, often connecting with your reason, connecting with that why, and that's sort of in link with mm -hmm. what you just said then. Exactly. It's really going back to, hey, what am I doing this for? Um, yeah. And once you have that connection, again, if you don't have that connection, then maybe, yeah, you need to be asking some bigger questions. But um, mm -hmm. certainly that question can help you just uh, mm -hmm. enjoy that task a lot more. And, I mean, I do it with the podcast. I love speaking to people, but then you have to go back and you have to edit it and, <laughs> You know, write notes and stuff like that, and some you know some of the show notes I don't mind writing, but sometimes the editing it's just a process. Um, so it's really about you know finding passion in those things, and it's 
for me, mm-hmm. it's just turning on another podcast that I can listen to that's stimulating and um, and you know, like you said, taking action, just getting it done, um, mm. not putting it off. And and that's it's surprising you said that actually because you're the third person I've spoke to in two weeks that we've talked about this this idea of you know taking quick action, immediate mm. action, and really getting into that momentum straight away. Because once you just take that step and start. It's just amazing how much easier it becomes because prior to, like you procrastinate and delay and do this and that, and it's just it's more pain than it's worth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I like that. Mm-hmm. I like that it's come come around again uh, to me. Mm-hmm. I yeah. had um, oh, I had a question there. It's just flown over my head. Oh yeah, just just your you've talked about it already how we we have the ability to control our thoughts and certainly you know whether the situation's positive, negative, or this current circumstance. Um, mm-hmm. We have the power to go to it with the right attitude, and attitude mm-hmm. changes the generally the outcome. So if we go towards something with bad attitudes, then the outcome is never going to be as great. And because mm-hmm. we have control of our thoughts, then we can actually then um, determine our attitude. And as you said, mm-hmm. even those negative things, those things that we perhaps don't like doing, we can go mm-hmm. towards them with, with great attitude, which will ideally, ultimately, um, change the mm-hmm. outcome as well. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Indeed, yeah. I think it's, yeah. it's just a good point to um, yeah reinforce for the audience there. Mm-hmm. And, and you you call it in uh, terms of the right attitude. Uh, that's one way to look at it. Uh, mm. But really, I mean, if you were to articulate what's a good attitude and what's a bad attitude, I think in the context of mindfulness, a good attitude is uh, one of non-judgmentalism. You know, okay. which is basically to say that look, um, this thing that is causing me anxiety. Um, uh, I'm going to observe this thing, this experience called anxiety, but without um, judging it or ruminating upon it or commenting on it, etc. That's the right attitude. So in a sense, it's not even an attitude. It's a state of no mind uh, mm-hmm. or the attempt is to not have the mind comment on it. If the mind does comment as it will, you know, invariably it does. That's what we're conditioned to. Uh, then not comment on the fact that the mind is commenting, you know. So <laughs> get the mind out as much as possible uh, out of the equation and just observe this thing called anxiety, which is so aversive, so miserable, and that we so that we don't even want to go there. You know, let's just do this experiment and, and uh, go towards it and see what it is. And uh, the analogy that I use often in this context is, you know, when you're driving up uh, to a mountain uh, from the plains, uh, as a child, we would often do that and um, go to this, um, you know, hill station, as we used to call it back in India. And uh, down from the plains, uh, the, the whole village might be covered by this thick kind of, you know, looking cloud, solid looking cloud. And once we rose up towards the cloud and then we actually entered the cloud, at some point we would enter it, it wouldn't even be clear when we entered it. You know, there was no solid boundaries for the cloud and it looked very solid from uh, below, but now we are in the cloud, it just looks like, you know, mist and uh, there's nothing to it really. Hmm. Uh, it feels kind of like that, you know, from a distance, this anxiety and fear and, and um, sadness or whatever seems so solid, so threatening, uh, so aversive. But once you get into it and say, okay, let me just examine how does this feel in terms of my body reactions, right? I mean, anxiety at the end is kind of like higher heartbeat, perhaps a dampness in the hands, um, you know, some twitching of the muscles, etc. Let me just very closely examine exactly what's going on without reminding myself of why I'm anxious, you know, so uh, not kind of let the mind come in again. If you do that, then you suddenly realize that what? I mean, that's all there is to it. And then you yeah. all of a sudden... Uh, get into this feeling of actual peace if uh, you know it's kind of um, surprisingly you actually feel 
that I can deal with this. I mean, this is not so bad. Um, in fact, it seems like this is a peaceful state to be in. Um, so that's a real interesting thing about mindfulness is that you feel better being mindful regardless of uh, where you started with a positive state or a negative state. Even aversive things are actually more easily handleable when, you, when you're fully accepting and mindful of them and uh, try not to run away from them. Yeah, I love it. And what, what um, just a, a couple of quick uh, mindfulness activities, do you have any suggestions of what we perhaps should be looking into and, and maybe pursuing? Yeah, um, uh, I have on my course um, a, a practice that one of my friends uh, led. It's called presence practice. It's mm-hmm. just trying to become more present. And, um, you know, one of the best ways to do it is to do a body scan. Um, but uh, he combines that presence practice, uh, sorry, he combines that body scan with uh, some other elements that are affirming and uplifting. Um, and so I can send you a link to that if you want. Uh, but uh, for somebody who's kind of... Uh, um, very logical slash rational uh, and yet wants to kind of um, venture into this mindfulness topic. Uh, I recommend uh, Chade Meng Tan's book. I don't know if you've come, come across it. It's called uh, um, Search Inside Yourself. Yep. It's a book written by a guy from Google, um, hence the title in a sense, Search Inside Yourself. Um, so it's a very practical, um, almost technical guide to mindfulness, you know. Okay. Uh, Good suggestion. Not, not yeah. Who was that by? Uh, by a guy called Chade Meng Tan. The last name is um, two words. It's a hyphenated uh, last uh, last name. Meng Tan, M-E-N-G hyphen T-A-N. Uh, yeah. T as in T, A as in Apple, N as in Nancy. Um, and uh, the first name is Chade. That's C-H-A-D as in Don E. C-H-A-D-E. Okay. Chade Meng Tan. Yeah, I'll stick that in the show notes, guys. We are worthwhile picking it up um, to, to help you with that mindfulness. Look, uh, we're running out of, a bit of time here, Raj, but I just want to ask you uh, probably two more questions. First, um, mm-hmm. just about scarcity and abundance. Ha- I mean, there's probably a lot to that, really, to, to, <laughs> to probably enough to cover a whole other episode. But what, mm-hmm. um, how do we go about you know clearing the scarcity mindset and, and going towards an abundance mindset? Because... I think a lot of us out there have a scarcity mindset, and that's just the way we've been brought up, potentially, society in general. Um, mm-hmm. And certainly there's some great books out there. I've read one recently that was you know, very, very, very eye-opening, I suppose, as to how to live with more abundance. But what are your suggestions around that? What, what's the book? What, what's the title of the book? I read it um, by Lisa Nichols, Abundance Now. Oh, abundance now. Okay. Yeah, I haven't read it, so I'll take a look at it. Um, yeah, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? I mean, how do you steer yourself from a mindset of scarcity towards abundance? Um, and I think the short answer to that question is, again, I mean, action. You know, you just need to put in place a set of practices that you're very diligent about and have the right attitude towards them as yeah. you're doing that on a daily basis over and over and over again. I mean, if you think about why we are scarcity-minded as a default, many of us, uh, certainly more so than would be ideal, is because of uh, uh, the social conditioning that's nurtured our hardwired propensity to exhibit 
scarcity. Um, you know, we all have a desire to survive and we have a desire to kind of hoard and be self-centered. And um, But we also have a desire to be altruistic, right? And the self-centered part of it, unfortunately, gets more strongly uh, developed and nurtured by societal messages, particularly in a kind of self-centered environment like a business school. It's more pronounced here, but certainly in other environments too. I mean, if you look at vast majority of the movies, you know, they kind of have this uh, storyline of uh, the downbeaten guy who somehow kind of succeeds in the long run by taking revenge and beating the kind of uh, David beats the Goliath kind of stories, right? Yeah. Scarcity orientation. Uh, uh, if you look at love stories, most of the time it's about this poor little girl who is not loved enough and she does a bunch of things that makes her much more attractive to other people, you know? Again, I mean, the story of I'm not complete by myself and somebody else this knight in shining armor needs to ride around and rescue you. Uh, again, a scarcity-oriented story. So we get all those stories, uh, exposed to all the stories that nurture that scarcity mindset. And so we need uh, as many um, things happening in our lives which nurture the abundance orientation. And if the world is not going to do it, then you got to do it yourself, to yourself, right? And so recognizing, first of all, that the scarcity orientation is there in you and that there's a reason why it's there in you because of all this conditioning, and then to recognize what might be an antidote to it, and then to put in place a set of practices that nurture that um, abundance orientation. So, for example, um, a gratitude practice, right? A practice of gratitude is really about um, reminding yourself of all the ways in which you're blessed and you have good things going uh, in your life, good things that are happening in your life that make you feel the sense of, you know what, at the end of the day, life has taken good care of me. I feel like I exist in a, you know, in a bountiful, abundant universe. Um, so that's one practice. Um, yep. Another practice um, might be uh, forgiving other people, right? Uh, that that have wronged you, um, and to kind of you know let go of this narrative that you were a victim um, to a narrative of uh, I am powerful enough to overcome this wrong uh, that somebody has done to me and walk away from it um, yep. and feel the sense of abundance in that uh, in the, in the, in that context so you know in my book i talk about seven different exercises uh, and each of those in one way or the other is really nurturing the sense of abundance and put together and practiced over a long enough period of time you'll see that you know in on any one given day you may not see a big effect but cumulatively over the period of a couple of years you'll suddenly realize that the the operating system uh, that's running you has a totally different flavor to it uh, than uh, was the case uh, even, let's say, a year back or two years back. And often it's the other people who are around you who notice it first before you do. Yeah, right. I, um, I love it and I, I've certainly you know, gotten into the practice myself, um, still improving and, and trying to master that, that sort of practice. But, uh, yeah, certainly some good takeouts there, Raj. So uh, thank you for that. Guys, I just want to, yeah, thanks, Raj, also for sharing. Um, hope you haven't given away too much of the book. I'm sure there's a lot more great stuff in there to read. So go out yeah, there yeah. And, and pick up yourself a copy. Um, the book title again is If You're So Smart, Why Aren't You Happy? I'll put the link in the show notes as well so you can get it there just in case you're out and about at the moment. That's at thehiddenwhy.com. But certainly uh, would be well worth a read. I'm going to go pick up a copy and read it myself. I haven't read it yet, Raj. So sounds like um, something that would be of, of great interest. So thank you for sharing. i just got a quick question. Is it okay or is it possible to always be happy? 
Yeah, it, it really depends on what your definition of happiness is. If uh, your definition is uh, that uh, you always want to feel a sense of sensual pleasure, um, then it's not possible to sustain it. But if your definition is that I want to be uh, in a state of uh, internal harmony, uh, whereby I'm perfectly capable of observing whatever is going on inside and outside of me um, with a sense of curiosity and with an implicit trust that everything is going to work out okay, mm. uh, then that state of uh, happiness, if you want to call that happiness, um, uh, can certainly be sustained. Um, that uh, state of internal confidence uh, that you know, you're capable of handling whatever life throws at you and that in the end it's all okay because life is by nature beautiful and benign and we're all connected. And there's nothing that you can do that's going to change that. And um, it's, uh, you know, in a sense, this implicit belief that um, whatever's existed is there for eternity and you're part of that existence. So that sense, uh, in that sense, you can sustain it. Yeah, yeah, love it. Well thought. Um, okay, cool. Well, let's jump into these questions, Raj. I've got uh, several of them just to go through, probably about five minutes. So we'll see how we go with that. Uh, the first one is, what is um, your meaning of success? My meaning of success is uh, how meaningful uh, and fulfilling, and it's going to be reflected in how happy you are, which is going to be uh, manifested in you know, just how uh, passionately you live your life, how engaged you are with everything that you do, how much you smile and laugh, and how um, uh, giving are you, how loving are you, uh, and how uh, you're comfortable with uh, taking the back seat uh, when somebody else has got the attention to, 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 to enjoy that as well, you know. So it's going to be reflected in all that, and that's what, uh, to me, is success. Great. And do you have any routines, rituals that you believe contribute to your success? Yeah, uh, certainly. Uh, I do three things on an everyday basis that uh, give me um, the solid foundation under my uh, foot, I feel, um, for me to lead that kind of a life uh, or at least go in that direction. One is that I have a, a solid uh, mindfulness practice um, that I do every day, at least for five minutes. Um, the second thing that I do is uh, write uh, a journal. Um, and I end basically the journal is just a recapitulation of everything that happened that day, uh, of course, from from my perspective. And then I end the journal with three good things that happened that day. Um, just little good things. I found a uh, dollar on the road or, you know, some stranger smiled at me or whatever. Um, and the third thing that I do is uh, I, I, I uh, make sure that I exercise every single day, um, even if it's only like a quick 10, 15 minute run. Um, so I do these things uh, that I feel are really very, very important uh, and anchor me and uh, solid pillars under my foot to make me feel happy. Yeah, good good practices to have, certainly. Mm-hmm. Okay, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self? My 20-year-old self? Uh, I would tell the 20-year-old self that uh, <laughs> life's going to be good. You know, don't worry about it. Don't sweat the small stuff uh, kind of a thing. Because uh, as many 20-year-olds, I guess, uh, I, I too was very, very concerned about, you know, how was life going to turn out? Was I going to be successful? Was I going to have arrived at one point versus not? And I spent too much negative energy on that question, I feel. Yeah, I get that often from a lot of the guests. Um, not to worry, you know, enjoy life. Life's going to be great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so really powerful. Hey, quick round questions, bit of fun. What's your favorite food? 
<laughs> my favorite food is actually uh, I've discovered over traveling many countries by now that it doesn't exist anywhere except in South India. Um, it's uh, what's called Thair Sadam. Uh, it's actually a mixture of white rice with yogurt, uh, just plain yogurt. And uh, it's a bit of an acquired taste, uh, even though it doesn't feel like that to me because I grew up with it. But uh, I'm discovering that most people, many people, when they are given that first, uh, they don't particularly enjoy it. But I love it. You know, it's it's so soothing. It's it's like, it's, it's very flavorless in a sense. But uh, once you get into it, uh, you kind of enjoy these more subtle flavors in it. And particularly if, if, if it's combined with, complemented with uh, South Indian pickle, as we call it, which is really a very spicy, salty kind of, um, uh, uh, what is it called? It's pickled um, in, in the solution of uh, high levels of uh, spice and yep. salt, uh, yep. mangoes and stuff like that. It, it, it goes well with that. What's That's it, my favorite sorry, dish. What's it called again? Tayir Sadam, that's spelled uh, T um, as in Thomas, H as in Henry, A as in Apple, Y as in Yak, uh, I as in India, R as in Robert, Tayir, T H A Y I R. And Tayir is basically yogurt. And Sadam is uh, rice that's spelled S as in Sam, A as in Apple, A again as in Apple, D as in Dawn, A as in Apple, M as in Mary. So Tayir Sadam. Tayir Sadam. Sounds mm-hmm. good. You make me hungry. Indian cuisine, some of my favorites. <laughs> cool stuff. And do you have a favorite book? Uh, I, I have lots of favorite books. And uh, you know, depending on the mood, um, yeah. you could have me pick uh, one book or the other. I, I really like books that um, uh, showcase the uh, subtleties of uh, human mind and uh, proclivities and our nature. Uh, uh, in, uh, depict them quite well uh, and are realistic um, without being overly kind of dramatic or having a moralistic angle to them. So I'm going to pick Atonement, a book by a guy called um, Ian McEwen. Um, the last name is spelled M-C-E-W-A-N, McEwen. Okay. Uh, Ian is his first name, I-A-N. And the uh, name of the book is Atonement. It's yeah. a story. It's a, it's, not, it's a novel. It's not a nonfiction. Mm-hmm. But uh, it, it really it could, could be a very good book to use in a psychology class, uh, just to understand the characters and so on. Ah, cool. Okay. Stick that in the show notes, guys. Pick up a copy. Use the Amazon link at thehiddenwire.com to help support the show. And if you're not an Audible member yet, um, you'll see the link there. You can subscribe and get two free Audible books as well. So um, there's an offer for you. Hey, Raj, have you got a favorite quote? My <laughs> a favorite quote, uh, I have, again, uh, lots of um, favorite quotes, uh, but for now, I'm going to do this one. Uh, the situation is hopeless, but it's not serious. Yeah, like it. Who is that by? Um, I don't know. It's anonymous. I mm-hmm. actually saw it in a retreat. Um, and what I like about it is that, uh, you know, life can often feel like it's completely hopeless you know that all these dreams that you had you're not going to achieve them but in the end it's not such a serious thing you know <laughs> don't take it so seriously uh, yeah yeah very very true i just had a dream this morning and i was going up oh, and felt you know dreams can feel so real sometimes but you don't take mm-hmm. dreams so seriously um as, mm-hmm. as you know exactly. it's just a dream so um mm-hmm. sometimes it's a good approach to life as well i like it good way to um come to the end of the show i've got one question for you and then i'm going to throw it over to you to show the audience how we can get you 
And my last mm-hmm. question is, the show's all about living life with passion and purpose. What does that mean to you? Um, so uh, the purpose part is a little bit easier, I feel, uh, which is that um, what do I feel uh, is a set of activities or an activity that is so interesting and absorbing to me that I can completely lose track of time um, doing it. And that is my purpose in life. And uh, passion, I guess, I mean, follows from that, uh, leading a life of purpose, that uh, this is something that you find either at a mental level to be so meaningful that you're willing to undergo sacrifices and physical discomfort, even boredom, and so on in order order to do it. Um, Or, um, you know, even if it's only purely physical, that, you know, you love, love playing this game of tennis or... Uh, love painting or whatever you just get so absorbed by it even though there's no larger meaning to it you just get completely absorbed by it that uh, to me is passion yeah well said cool Raj it's been an absolute pleasure how do the audience get in touch with you to find out more about yourself the book etc I know you've got a website there happysmarts.com is that the Mm -hmm. best place to go or is there other places yeah, I think that uh, happysmarts.com is kind of one-stop shop for a lot of the stuff that I do. Um, you can find links to my Coursera course that I mentioned earlier, to my book and to my articles and so on. But um, there's also lots of other um, kind of ways in which to reach me, including my Macombs website. You can also email me directly. I'm happy to correspond with people. Yeah, and the best um, yeah the best way to kind of reach my me by email I I won't actually kind of spell it out because it's a long one uh, you know and my last name is kind of difficult to spell but uh, just Google Raj Macombs M C C O M B S or Raj U T Austin and you'll get to my website and you can just find my email and uh, reach me from there. Right. I'll stick the uh, links to that in the show notes too, guys, so you can um, get it at thehiddenwire.com if you can't remember that. Cool. Raj, thank you. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. We've sticked to our, our time, I believe, just on. <laughs> so um, that's always a good achievement. But, uh, yeah, thank you. There's so much more we could have probably discussed. Um, certainly got into more of the techniques and stuff uh, on the other side as well. But you've given us a few there and lots to think about as far as happiness in our own life and, and success and how they relate. So mm-hmm. uh, I appreciate you sharing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the same here, Lee. I really, really uh, appreciated all the questions that you had and, very interesting, very organic, the way that you uh, do it. Uh, so kudos to you. And I'm really looking forward to exploring your website and your other interviews as well. Thanks, Raj. Thank you. And guys, checking out thehiddenwire.com. All the show notes links will be provided there. Leave your comments and make sure you reach out to Raj as well. Thank you for coming on the show and maybe asking some more questions if you do have them. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon. Thanks, guys, for listening to this episode. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. I hope you love what you're hearing. If you like this episode, guys, or any of the episodes that you're listening to here at The Hidden Why, please do me a favor by sharing it. You can share it with your families. You can share it with your loved ones. You can do that by using your favorite social media channels using the icons on the platform that you're listening to The Hidden Why podcast. Also, guys, if you're a fan of the show, please connect with me. Connect with me at thehiddenwide.com. I love to hear from you. I love to converse with the people that listen to this show to find out what they enjoy, what they don't enjoy, and perhaps if they have any questions or feedback for the show as well. You can stay up to date with all that I'm releasing here, guys. I do a solo show every Monday, a three-minute thought every Thursday. I do two interviews a week on a Wednesday and a Saturday, and a book review every Friday. You can stay up to date with all that by subscribing to my newsletter at thehiddenwire.com. Just enter your email address there. And also subscribing to the podcast on the platform that you choose to listen to your podcast. 
You can also support the show, guys, by using the Amazon links at thehiddenwire.com. So if you like books, you can get all the books that I review there um, and anything else, really, that you like to purchase through Amazon. So use that link. It helps support the show. And we've also got a deal with Audible, guys. Audible is a fantastic way to listen to all your favorite books. We've got a deal with them so you can get two free books when you subscribe or, yeah, subscribe to a 30-day free trial. So check that out, again, at thehiddenwire.com. Guys, that's it from me. You know what to do. Go out there. Breathe more passion into every single moment. Do everything with greater purpose. And in doing so, you will discover your hidden why. This is The Hidden Why. My name is Lee Martin. Until next time, peace, passion, and purpose. See you soon.